Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be found in this place on the first day of the week, this glorious day that we are reminded of Christ's victory over sin and death and hell. And Father, we do pray now that as your word is open before us, that we would be mindful that you are a holy God, that your word tells us that you are a consuming fire who cannot look upon sin. And we do pray that as we are here this day, that we would be a people who have repented, that we would be a people who have fled to Christ from the wrath to come, and that as we are here this day, that we would learn from your word and that we would be encouraged greatly and that we would see Christ more clearly and love him more dearly. To this end we pray, Heavenly Father, guide the lips of the preacher this morning and the ears of the hearer alike, we do pray. For Jesus' sake, Amen. My sermon title this morning, once again very simple, Jonah the disgruntled preacher. Jonah, the disgruntled preacher. And I've decided to condense two sermons into one, but I'm going to try and do it in the same amount of time, God willing. But if you'll open your eyes to this fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, in verse 1 we read the word of God, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Many of you read the Bible daily, and I pray that you do read the Bible daily. And there are some passages of Scripture that are very difficult. When we read them, we think, what on earth is taking place here? And at first, as we had our Scripture reading this morning from Jonah chapter 4, we may not think there are many difficulties in this passage, but there is. The difficulties should be very plain to us to see, because in the weeks before, and if you have read through Jonah, you have seen how God has dealt with Jonah. You have seen a man, the prophet of God, Jonah, who's been raised up for a purpose, who God has given him a message to proclaim. Then you have seen that man turn and go in the other direction. Then you have seen that man speak God's word to the mariners on the ship. Then you have seen God's intervention in the wind and the waves that that ship was upon. You have seen the hand of God as Jonah has been thrown into the ocean. Then you have seen God's gracious dealing with Jonah in the belly of the great fish. Then you have seen how God has delivered Jonah from the belly of that great fish. Then you have seen the repentance that God has brought upon this great city Nineveh. And then we come to chapter 4. And we see that what has come before in the verses before is that God has not destroyed this place, Nineveh. Chapter 3 and verse 10, the verse above, Then God saw their works, that is, their repentance, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from disaster, that is, destroying them. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 4. But this thing displeased Jonah. How on earth is that the case? Because we have a short memory. Every single one of us is guilty of this. The preacher is guilty of this this morning. We're guilty of forgetting so quickly 
especially when things don't go our way, what God has done with us in the past. Imagine it. Jonah's been delivered so many times. God should have struck him down, but he allowed it. He allowed Jonah to be disobedient. He delivers him time and time again. Then he raises him up again as his preacher. And then he brings about a miraculous repentance on that place, Nineveh, through this man's preaching. You would have thought that Jonah would have been absolutely rejoicing at this point. Imagine it, he's only been preaching for three days or less and all of a sudden the king of this wicked city, Nineveh, has repented. All of a sudden the king's decree, as we saw last week, has gone forth that all creation, every creature in that place, will stop what they are doing and turn to God. That there was a physical repentance that took place in that great city. He should be rejoicing. We're told here that there were 120,000 persons who couldn't discern their right hand from the left. What does that mean? They were children. They didn't have discernment. They couldn't make these decisions for themselves. And God relents from destroying this place, Nineveh. This is absolutely profound and amazing. And yet here we find Jonah wallowing in sorrow. Here we find Jonah being exceedingly upset with what God has done. It's really incredible. That's why I say these verses are very difficult. But I hope that you will come to understand them this morning as we work through them. Imagine this man, Jonah. Imagine all he's been through and then seen this place repent. Incredible results, we might say in our modern language. Jonah probably should have had a pay increase. He he should have been at the top of the heap of profits, you would have thought, but not Jonah. When Jonah sees what has taken place, he's not rejoicing. Why? Because these people were his enemies. These people were not nice, polite Israelites. These people were wicked in the sights of the Israelites. And so therefore, he actually desired that they would be destroyed. And when he answers God, when he prays to God, verse 2, he says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. We can sit here and we can say, what on earth was Jonah thinking? But when we understand this man Jonah and where he was from, it makes perfect sense. Remember the Israelites in their mind and according to God's word were the chosen people of God. They had the covenants with God. They were the chosen people who God would uphold above all else. And now all of a sudden, in the eyes of Jonah, God has relented from destroying a wicked people who are their enemy. Imagine this. Israel is in tatters in a sense. The kingdom is divided, north and south. There's two kingdoms. Everything's fallen apart after Solomon. And this man, the prophet of God, is looking forward to the restoration of that. He's looking forward to Israel being one again. He doesn't want to preach judgment against Israel. 
but he would have been somewhat happy to preach judgment against others. In passing here, this is the same in the church today. You'll find so many preachers saying, all the problems are outside in the world. That's where all the problems are. We don't look in, we look out, because all out there, this is where the problems are. Let me tell you, brethren, the problems are in here. The problems are even in the preacher this morning, because I know my heart. The problems are in us. It's no good looking out all the time and saying, there's the problem, the world's doing this. No, 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 we need to be critical of ourselves. I'm not saying that we judge ourselves according to the world standard, but we need to judge ourselves according to God's standard. The Israelites didn't want to do this. Jonah was quite happy for God to destroy another nation, but he didn't want God to be merciful and gracious to them because they were his enemies. So this is why Jonah says these things. This is why he remarks that he fled from God, from the calling of God, because he knew God would not destroy them. Rather harsh of Jonah, it's true. But his mindset was that I am the prophet of God, I am God's spokesman, I come from a nation that is God's chosen people, and God will and God must restore us because we are Israelites. He must destroy all our enemies and he must bring us all into one. This was his mindset. And so when God relents from destroying his enemies, what does he think? This is not good for Israel. This is not good for Israel in any sense of the imagination because these people hate Israel. But Jonah doesn't rejoice. He doesn't go to the people and, and, and say, well, this is wonderful that God has done this work. No. Jonah decides to look to himself. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, he cries out in this prayer, unlike the prayer that he has prayed whilst in the belly of the great fish, he says, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Imagine being in that position. Why has he become so low? After all of God's gracious dealings with him, why when God does this wonderful work, why is Jonah at this point wishing that he would die? He's there first and foremost because he's looking at himself and he's thinking, what about me? He's thinking, what's going to happen to me when I go back to my nation, Israel, and this thing that I have preached has not come true? Well, you know what they're going to think. They're going to think this man's a false prophet. That's what he was in the eyes of the Israelites if this actually took, took, took um, hold this way. They would have said he's a false prophet. That was his view. So all of a sudden... When God relents from destroying this great city, he starts to look to himself. Instead of remembering God's gracious dealings with him and then seeing that displayed in Nineveh, now he turns back to himself. This is what I love about Scripture, brethren. It doesn't sugarcoat these things. It's very clear what is taking place here if you look at Scripture on the whole. If you understand the history of God's people down through the ages, it's very clear what's happening here. 
Can you imagine him actually praying those words to God? God, destroy me. Before he's saying, God, deliver me from the belly of this great fish. Don't deal with me this way. Then, when you have relented of doing this great, enormous judgment, now destroy me instead. Don't go and rejoice with the people. No, he's looked at himself so greatly, he believes he should be so esteemed as being a prophet of God that all of a sudden he's concerned about what people think again. He's concerned about what his people back home are going to think of him, prophesying and these things not coming true. Instead of being there and rejoicing with the people, no, he's thinking of himself. Verse 4, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? There's a warning here in scripture also about the way that we pray to God. I hear many prayers today in sermons and in services and it's almost as if we're just talking to another person. The way that we come to God is not with any fear or reverence with so many people. It's just talking to a friend. And here Jonah, being graciously dealt with by God, pushes that aside also. He's forgotten that God's in control of all things because he's looking at himself and he's just saying, now Lord, destroy me. See, but in his prayer... He's even recognising that God is in control of everything. He's even acknowledging that God did all of these works and that God can destroy him. So God reminds him, is it right for you to be angry? We need to be careful. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray. What I'm saying is we need to be mindful of whom we're praying to when we come in prayer. It's not just a joke. We're not just talking to a friend. And we're coming before all of the Lord of glory. And the only way that we can come is in and through the name of Christ. In and through his finished work. If we do not have an advocate with the Father, we are not coming before another friend. We're coming before a holy God who will not let sin go unpunished. And if we're not coming in and through the name of Christ, we're coming in and through the name of another. You know, I heard a man say to me one day, I I don't need Christ. He said, I just view Christ as a crutch. You Christians, you need something to prop you up. This is your way of getting through life. You have these little pep talks and you hear about Jesus and he just gets you through life. This is the view of somebody who's unsaved. This is the view of somebody who is following after their father, the devil. Why? Because they actually believe that they're going to stand before God in and of themselves and he's just going to deal graciously with them. I remember speaking with one man, he was talking about his auntie and he was saying, oh, when when she dies, she always says that when she stands before God, she's going to have a few questions to ask him. What rot? Absolute rot. Does she actually believe that she's going to stand before a holy God and question God in any way, shape or form? It's absolutely ridiculous. We need to be very cautious and careful of how we come before the Lord in prayer. 
But God here deals very graciously again with Jonah. We see him doing this time and time again. He asks him, is it right for him to be angry? Then we learn in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. Here he is in amongst the people, seeing the mighty work of God, seeing God do this great work of repentance among these people, and he doesn't stay. He decides once again to leave. The people didn't hate him, they didn't wish to destroy him, but he decided to remove himself from the situation. A situation where he should have been encouraging the people once again, he should have been proclaiming the word of the Lord, instead he flees again. He goes out of the city, he sits down on the east side of the city, and we read that he makes himself a shelter, that he sits under it, that he might, it might watch the city from a distance. He might see what is taking place in that great city. Not to rejoice in any way, he doesn't stop for a moment to praise God. No, he's concerned about himself. He's going to sit there, be disgruntled, and whine to himself and to God. It reminds you so much of a child doing something similar when they've been punished by their parents. Jonah doesn't praise God in any way here. He just wants to watch from afar off and wallow in his own sorrow. He builds himself a shelter because of where the position is that he is sitting. It's a place where there is sun and there is wind, and so he wants to be comfortable. He's long forgotten God's dealings in the belly of the great fish. He wants to have some comfort for himself. We see this time and time again in Scripture with many prophets and many preachers. We see them forgetting what God has done and desiring to do things their way. So Jonah wants some comfort. He's done with preaching God's way. He's done with God's gracious dealings with people. Now now he wants some comfort for himself. But he can't escape God. The psalmist said that even if he went down to the place of death, God was there. This isn't popular today. A view that God is omnipresent, even in hell. No, we've made this all polite in the modern church. I'm not sure, maybe you've found yourself saying this. I know I have in the past, when I was somewhat ignorant of God's attributes. When you say, no, 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 God doesn't send anyone to hell. You say, no, 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 people send themselves there because they refuse to accept Christ. Well, that's false. And then you say, no, no, what hell is, is just complete separation from God. Rubbish. Hell is not complete separation from God. Hell is the place where God's judgment is poured out upon a sinner for eternity. It's not separate from God. It is a place where his wrath and his holy anger are poured out. You cannot escape God anywhere you go. The sinner hates God, so why would God refuse to punish them in hell? Why would God from turn from them even in hell? No, they will be reminded in their torment for eternity that there is a living God who controls all things, who is present everywhere. That's what they will be reminded of constantly. 
that God is holy and just and he will not pass over them. So hell is not a nice, polite place where you are separate from God. No, hell is the place where God's judgment and wrath will be poured out upon you for eternity. Don't believe what the modern preacher and the modern church tells you. It is rubbish. You cannot escape God's presence anywhere. And so here Jonah is reminded of this once again. As he sits in his little makeshift shelter and wallows in his sorrow, God reminds him of his attributes. God reminds him who he is. Verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come over Jonah so that there might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Remember, this is Jonah who said salvation is of the Lord when he's delivered from the belly of the great fish. Jonah acknowledges this, but then all of a sudden when he's wallowing in his sorrow, he's grateful for this plant. This is common today. This is common for people in our society to worship the creation rather than the creator. And this is even one who knew that great creator and had seen his great works. He still forgot. And he was grateful for that plant that had come up over his shade and had sheltered him from that hot sun that was beating down upon him and it would have made him feel absolutely terrible. You know what we need to do, brethren, when we find ourselves in similar situations? We need to stop. I said this the other week. The people of God today are not good at waiting on God. I'm guilty of this myself, but we need to stop. We like to be a people who are busy and doing things, but we need to stop what we are doing and be still at a point in time. God brought Jonah to this point for a reason once again. He's raised up this plant and Jonah needs to halt from everything. He needs to stop running, he needs to stop preaching and he needs to be still. Verse 8. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and he said... It is better for me to die than to live. Then Jonah said to God, verse 9, sorry, then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. Jonah needed to stop. People of God need to stop and be still sometimes even today. I'm not telling you don't pray, but think before your thoughts get the better of you and ahead of you when you are in prayer. I heard it put this way by a preacher once. Halt. If you are hungry, if you are angry, if you are lonely, or if you are tired, you need to stop. You need to halt. Jonah was probably all four of these things. He just needed to stop and be still and reflect on God's gracious dealings with him. But instead, his anger gets the better of him and it starts to lead him and the sin that is inside of him starts to come out even 
before God himself. He starts to desire that he would die rather than to live. That it would be better for him to be dead. God reminds him again. We see God graciously dealing with Jonah time and time again. And you might be sitting here thinking, how thick was this Jonah guy? No, he wasn't. You know who Jonah is like? He's just like you and he's just like me. Jonah was not thick in any way, shape or form and I don't believe that you are either. But God gets us to a point and reminds us, he brings us low, he makes us stay still, he disciplines us for his glory. We continue on. Is it right for me to be angry even to death, says Jonah in verse 9? The Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not laboured, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. God reminds Jonah of something so simple. He reminds him that he's in control of all things, even this very plant and even the worm. Do you see what is happening throughout Jonah? We see God using his creation constantly. Remember in my first sermon, I think it was, where I said that God is both transcendent and imminent. And here we see it being fulfilled over and over and over again. It was God who gave Jonah the money, in a sense, to get on the ship. It was God who had the mariners waiting on that ship for him. It was God who raised up the storm, the wind and the storm, to cause that ship to be in great turmoil. It was God who raised up the great fish to swallow Jonah. It was God who caused the great fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. It was God throughout all of the story of Jonah. All of the historical account of every book of the Bible is God. From Genesis verse 1 to the end of the book of Revelation, it's God working in history. It is his story. He's working it out. It's not by mere chance or by accident. I heard a preacher just recently in a sermon saying, uh, relating to the book of Amos, how God was in turmoil at this point. How he had to pass judgment against the people, but he really didn't want to. What rubbish. It's complete nonsense. God is not in turmoil over how he will deal with you or with me. God knows the end from the beginning. He's predestined all things. He controls all things. And here we see it being displayed time and time and time again in the book of Jonah and time and time again in the whole of Scripture. God's in control of all of it. Here he reminds Jonah that he was the one who raised up that plant. This is why I think it's so funny with the greenies how they actually think they can control the climate. I know I've said this before in my sermons. They actually think if we just stop doing certain things, we'll control the climate. We'll have the say. No, you won't. God has determined that there is a point in time when this world will end. Here's a revelation. I don't know when that point is. Nobody knows other than God. But I do know one thing, that we will not control it. When I was a child, I was taught this nonsense about there being a hole in the ozone layer. There were men who wrote songs about it and sang about it. I remember one man, the song, uh, the son of John Lennon, singing this song about crying over the hole of, in the ozone layer. Where's the hole now? It's gone. God determined that it wouldn't continue. 
God intervened just as he done and has done in all of our lives. He did it with Jonah and he's doing it with you even if you know it or not. We need to be reminded of this constantly. Jonah had seen God's miraculous work and yet he'd forgotten. Less than 40 days he had seen God transform this great city Nineveh and he's forgotten all about it because he's looking at himself. You know, the counsellors and the philosophers and all of these experts will tell you you need to look inside yourself. That deep, 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 deep down inside of you there is something good. No, there is not. There is absolute wretchedness in every single one of us and if you continue to look down inside of you, you will see it. And if you don't, it's because you are that wretched and depraved that you actually convince yourself that there is something good in you. There is nothing good in you or me but by the grace of God. Jonah's looking at himself. He's starting to become angry with God. This is what happens with every child of God who takes their eyes off Christ and who won't go to God's word and who won't pray in a manner worthy of being heard according to God's word. They become angry. Jonah's angry about a plant. That's how low he's become. He doesn't care about people. He cares about a mere plant. That's what is happening in our world right now. That is what happened after Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden. It is the exact same thing. Exactly the same thing. There is nothing new under the sun, wrote Solomon. It was the same then and it is the same now. Man says, we will have our say, we'll do things our way, we'll control all things, we're going to do away with all illness, we're going to do away with everything. No, we're not. We never will. We cannot. Here is Jonah being upset about a plant. And here God reminds him in verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern their right hand and their left and much livestock. God reminds Jonah what is important. The word of God says that this world is passing away, but God's word will endure forever. You will not stop sin. You will not stop disease. You will not stop so-called climate change. You won't stop any of those things. All you will do in doing so is work yourself swiftly before the judgment of a holy God and hell for eternity. If you are doing it in your own steam, that is where you are heading. God reminds Jonah that he controls every single thing, even the worms, and that his people will not perish. That the Ninevites were not going to perish because he was in control of them that his will would be done. And you think at first, doesn't the book of Jonah end in not so high a note? Yes, it does. It ends with God reminding Jonah and God reminding all of us that he is completely and utterly in control of everything that happens. Every single atom and molecule is under his control. Even that guitar falling before was under his control. Everything. It wasn't an accident. 
This is how the book of Jonah ends, with God reminding Jonah of his gracious dealings. And this is how I'm going to end this series. We need to be reminded of God's intervention into everything, God's control of everything, and God's gracious dealings with his people. I know the Armenians take a verse from the New Testament, from the book of Peter, where God records that he is not willing that any should perish. And they take that and twist that and say that God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's not what it means. If read in its context, what he is saying is that he is not going to let one of his people perish. You notice his people, not all people, not one will be lost. You should take great comfort in this, brethren, today. If you are in Christ, you should be rejoicing with the preacher who is in control of everything. Not leaving you alone, not you working out things according to your will. No, God who is in charge and in control of every single thing. If there is one Adam that is not under his control, he's not God. But everything is. That is what shines through through Jonah the whole time because God is speaking all of the time through all of his word and he's reminding us who he is, that he hasn't left any of us alone. You may think you're here today and you're going it alone, but you are not. God is even controlling every single one of your actions today. He's the God who is active in his creation. He hasn't left it alone. So here he reminds us that not one of his people will be lost. Not one. Think of it, brethren. It is absolutely amazing to see God's work being demonstrated here. That God deals with these Ninevites even though they are wicked. You know what I see so often is people becoming puffed up who call themselves Christians, who start to look out upon the world and say, look at their wickedness. And they start to become like that Pharisee who entered the temple in the proverb that Christ tells us about. That is where the Pharisee looks up to God in the temple and he says, I thank you that I am not like other people that I'm not like this wretched tax collector who's next to me, who dare not even look up to you. No, I praise you that I am not like him. It's all of himself. And this is the case with many people who I meet today. They're not prepared to accept that they are actually sinners. I remember one man telling me, and forgive me if I've told you this, but he said he didn't like this one particular preacher because he preached about sin all the time. And he told people from the pulpit that they were sinners. He said, I'm not going to go to a church like that where we're called sinners every week. I said, no, you're right. Of course you're not. No, you don't want to be told that you're a sinner. No, you want to believe that you're good. And if that's the case, you have no right to be in the church because you're good and go out and live your life in all of its goodness according to your will. That man has no time for Christ and Christ has no time for him. Why? Because our Saviour said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost and he'd come not for the righteous but he'd come for wretched sinners. He hadn't come to save good people and to make them a bit better 
No, he'd come for wretched sinners who were vile in the sight of a holy God, who wouldn't stand before God in and of themselves. He'd come to save them. And this is why the Christian needs to be very careful when we look outside in the world. We need to be careful that we don't start to say, Oh God, I'm so happy I'm not like them. No, we need to be a people who say, praise you, Heavenly Father, that you have put me into Christ and I am exactly like them. And there, but by the grace of God, goes I. That's what we need to be. We need to be a people who recognise that first and foremost that we are sinful and secondly, that in Christ we are perfect and that we have found our Saviour. And that more importantly, he has found us and that he won't let us go. As we sang that hymn earlier on, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Don't think that you are doing it yourself. It is all of Christ and none of you or of me. Not one of us has saved ourselves. Not one of us can atone for one sin. Absolutely none of us. It is Christ who has purchased his people and that they are accepted in him. It is in Christ, brethren, that we have our value. It is in him that we live and move and have our beings. And that's what I've been trying to get to you through to all of us, including myself, the past five weeks. That our value is in Christ. If we are not in Christ, we are on our way to sin and more sin and death and hell, the judgment of a holy God, and we cannot in any way, shape or form atone for one sin. You may slay all the animals you like on an altar. You may say all the Hail Marys you like on your knees. It won't do a thing. It is only in Christ that one can be saved. No other way. This is what Jonah reminds me of. He reminds me of my sin. He reminds me of God's gracious dealings with me, a sinner. And I pray that he reminds you of his gracious dealings with you, a sinner, too, this morning. I pray that you can read through this book now and you can say, yes, I can see it. Not because the preacher is gifted in any way, but because it's there. And not only in the book of Jonah, but from Genesis 1.1, that you can see that in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. It was all of God. And that you can see it start to come out in every page of Scripture. It's flowing through Scripture. Every verse, every individual word is God revealing He's in control. And that in that, I pray that you take comfort, brethren. I pray that you say, praise God that He is in control. This world is passing away, but He is not. You and me will taste death. This world and every creature will taste death. But God will not. God has finished every work that he sought to accomplish and he did it before he spoke time into existence. Everything is timed by his sovereign clock and everything is in his control. Let us not be like Jonah and sit in a huff and think, poor me. But let us be reminded by the word of God here today of his gracious dealing with an undeserving people.
that he dealt with Nineveh graciously, that he poured out his mercy upon them, that he sovereignly intervened, and let us rejoice in that, brethren. Let us rejoice here this day that God deals with sinners like you and me in this way. And let us once again flee to him from the wrath to come. Let us lay aside all of the things that hold us back and let us be reminded again that in Christ we live and we move and we have our being. Not in and of ourselves, brethren, but in and of Christ, the only Saviour of man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious dealing with an undeserving people down through the ages. We see that you have been active since you created this world and everything in it. We see how you have intervened sovereignly at all stages. We see how you are both transcendent and imminent. We see how you graciously deliver undeserving sinners time and time and time again and how you have even delivered us physically here today. But Lord, how we do pray that you would deliver all of us here spiritually in that supernatural way that only you can do. How we do pray that you would deliver our nation, its leaders and our commonwealth. We do pray that we would not be proclaimed to be a wicked people as the Ninevites were. And we do pray that you would start this very day with each one of us. For those of us in Christ, we do pray that you would refresh us and renew us again as only you can do. For those who are here and those, our neighbours and our friends and our families, who are strangers to Christ, we do pray for them. We do pray that it would please you to save many from their sin. We pray that you would use us mightily in the days ahead. And we pray that we would give all glory and honour and praise to you. We acknowledge again that you are worthy of all these things. Forgive us for the times when we do not do these. Forgive us for the times when we become introverted and introspective and look at ourselves. Lord, remind us again. Chasten us, we do pray, with your sovereign hand. And remind us of our value in Christ. Remind us of the shedding of his perfect blood. And remind us that in him, that his blood has washed us and made us whiter than snow. O oh, Heavenly Father, we beseech you to do a mighty work. Starting here in this place with each one of us, we do ask for Jesus' glory alone. Amen.